see you all. I was, I'm just here to just quickly um, introduce our wonderful friend um, and guest, Meryl Blair, um, today. Over this last, this Advent period, we've, we've kind of looked at um, how does the Old Testament kind of interweave with the stories and the narrat- birth narratives of Jesus and it kind of was helpful last week. We had Meryl here. I've just it kind of is this big arc of God at work and um, and just showing God's self in these stories and continuing through Jesus um, and through Mary. God definitely at work. Um, we read through the two birth narratives um, and and just finding the differences and delighting in these stories that emphasise different things. Um, and in the two stories of Mary, they just couldn't be more different, you know, these two wonderful stories. So, um, Meryl is, we've, we've adopted her forever. She'll, she's never allowed out of her, her, her relationship with us. That's just how, um, uh, but she knows Old Testament, that's, breathes it, enjoys it, delights it, even just as we were sort of she's just saying, it always comes back to the Hebrew scriptures to Meryl, which I love that things always weave back into the Hebrew scriptures when we chat and um, when you come and speak with us, Meryl. So um, I'll let her take the mic and we get to just play today and explore the stories. So thank you, Meryl. Yeah, oh, we get to, and you get to quietly half clap as well. <laughs> Or I could just make everyone, you know. Oh, yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you. So I can sort of feel as if there are people there, you know. Not <laughs> Hello, out in, the, out in the bleachers. So um, thank you for having me back. It's really very gracious of you. I always feel that you're not only happy, you have me back again, uh, which is really lovely. So today, uh, following up from last week, so... Um, If you weren't here last week, you just might have to listen to the podcast at some stage to catch up on some of the background, Um, because I don't... If I go through it all again to catch you up, uh, that'll take us till lunchtime, and then I'll start. So, you probably prefer I don't do that. So, today... Thank you, my dear. Um, Thinking about the story specifically of Mary, having done a whole lot of the background sweep... Um, I will just very quickly have a look at Matthew's story, but only really quickly because, um, as you're well aware by now, because you've read through them separately and now you've got clear in your mind the differences between Matthew and Luke, yes, yes, I'm sure. If not, uh, go home and do it. Uh, And you'll know that Matthew's story doesn't actually feature Mary, even though, uh, and it's really interesting because I talked a bit about the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's um, gospel, and it leads to Mary. And in in Hebrew tellings and in the genealogies throughout that pop in here and there through the Old Testament, the last name is the key. The last name is the climax. And Mary... Mary is the climax, who then is the mother of Jesus, who is the saviour of the world, is where all of that great sweep of history is heading. And it's really interesting that he then goes on to tell the story through the point of view of Joseph. Um, But 
Matthew's gospel, you know, the, the beginnings of Matthew's gospel are very much setting this story in the sweep of world politics and socio-political power. And so the man tells a story, but it's a story of a man who chooses compassion over um, his rights, chooses uh, to, to trust the voice of an angel over um, centuries of, tr of conditioning into what it means to be a man and, and what it means to um, uphold the morality of the family and, and the group and all of these sorts of things. So there's something very strong there. But when we move into Luke's gospel, we have this fascinating, different telling. And Luke tells it in so much detail. There are so many different chapters, so many different scene changes in, in Luke's telling. And Mary is such, such a main character. She's not necessarily on stage all the time, but if she's not on stage, she's there by, um, by contrast, if nothing else. Last week I said uh, fairly briefly that I think Luke's got a bit of a twinkle in his eye at the beginning because he sets us up with... Uh, I talked a little bit about annunciation scenes as type scenes. You get them all through the Old Testament and then we have these type scenes of annunciations um, at the beginning of uh, Matthew and Luke as well. And in Luke, the annunciation is a typical annunciation uh, story at the beginning to Zechariah. And Zachariah and Elizabeth are the right people from the right background and we're expecting that this is where the Saviour will come from. Instead of which, they're set up to be merely the precursors. And the next annunciation scene that comes straight after that is not to a priest of the priestly line who can follow his line back to, to the very beginning. It's to a young girl in a little out-of-the-way town called Nazareth who is nothing, who has no rights. I started out with this, this um, image of the Annunciation uh, anyone been to Italy and seen various annunciations there? Yeah, this is a sort of fairly typical composition. Beautiful, they're absolutely beautiful. Um, and they tend to be set in these sort of marble halls with the beautiful tiled floors, um, quite rich dress and things like that. And they were deep theological statements of faith at the time, this belief of, of the, um, the coming of the Holy Spirit from the divine into a human being and, and a, a deep statement of the partnership between the divine and the human that is happening in these stories. Uh, there is always a lily somewhere to signify the purity of Mary. Um, you know, there are all sorts of symbols which I, I won't go into, but uh, this, is, this is part of the story. But what ends up happening, of course, is that these are the images that come forward through, through the ages and tend to separate Mary from any sense for us of reality. So if I could have the next slide. I, there, there are a lot of modern annunciations. I love this one. 
Um, this is me as a 14... Oh, it's not literally me as a 14-year-old, but if, if, if an angel had come to me as a 14-year-old, I would have had my nose in the book and not even noticed. I would have to say I'd be so busy reading. But the picture of a young girl in a school uniform, nose in a book, suddenly her world being absolutely ripped apart... And I think this is one thing that maybe Matthew makes us more aware of than Luke does, the sense of the lowering shame, the, the possibilities for absolute societal um, horror, disgust, shame, outcast, that Mary is, is in, in the space of by this... Um, not to mention, you know, who's ready? Who's, who's, who's ever ready to have a baby? Nobody. Uh, but, but even less so when she's not even married yet. Those plans, who knows how long it would be before they, they came about. But that sense of vulnerability, that sense of unpreparedness that comes, um, maybe the next one too. I love what art does to help us reread the story carefully. And this one, um, this is an enunciation too. Just, just that sense of, you know, the young vulnerable girl who's having a wash in her, in her, um, you know, uh, in her. What do you call those things that people wear under dresses? Petticoats. Petticoats thank you. Tell how long since I wore one of those. And, um, you know, hearing something in the middle of it, and just the thoughtful look on her face, but not quite sure what to do with it. So, in the story of the Annunciation, there is this sense of all of those things going on. I'm actually going to read these, these verses from uh, Luke 1, 26 through to 38, and hold all of that in your mind as you hear them. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be, strange. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Yeshua, uh, Saviour, Jesus, the Greek form. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, "'How can this be, since I am a virgin?' The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. What were you feeling as you heard some of those words of the angel? 
I've got to say, every time I hear, and I've said this last week, every time I hear an angel say, do not be afraid, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> What's going to come is not going to be good news, no matter how they name it. And then the piling on of all of those, you know, the child you're going to have is going to be, to, to, to talk about identity foreclosure. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, people just hope for an, a live child with, you know, the right number of limbs and, and things like that. And this is all being piled on top. No wonder Mary ponders in her heart... Lots of pondering going on there. What an overwhelming experience. And as we read it through, we're meant to feel overwhelmed, I think, because then we understand how Mary feels when she hears, when, when, when she, where she's coming from, I think, where those words of hers are coming from when she says, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Echoes. There are echoes happening throughout this. Um, when I was talking about Elizabeth and Zachariah before, big echoes of the Annunciation to Abraham about the child that we will be born to Sarah. Too old, past it, can't possibly. Um, how could this happen? And Sarah, of course, in the background laughing her head off. And this wonderful, oh, yes, you did, oh, no, I didn't, going on between Sarah and God when he accuses her of laughing. Uh, there's a sense of that happening there. In here, there's a sense of the call of Samuel. Here am I. Here am I, Lord. Uh, and they're quite deliberate pulling in of echoes from the past to make us remember that God has landed some pretty hard stuff on people all throughout history but invited them into the sheer overwhelming breaking and, and crackling of the status quo to say something else is possible. So here we are in a, in a Roman world, very, very clear demarcations. Um, society was very much organised according to um, layers. You, you worked with the people who were of your uh, social layer. You socialised with them. You, you did everything with order. And, and Rome was all about order. The Roman Empire was all about order, keeping things well ordered. And in comes this angel and just drops a bomb into the order. And here is Mary, sort of at the bottom of that bomb, kind of holding it in one hand and going, okay, okay. We don't know much about Mary. There's so little written about her in the Gospels. It's clearly not until much later that the church begins to take an interest in her backstory and stories start to be told about her, but not for quite a long time. You know, the fact that, as we've already seen, John and Mark don't even have an infancy narrative and Mary only pops into the Gospels a couple of times, even in Luke and Matthew. John's interesting because John begins the public ministry of Jesus with Mary's statement of faith, the wedding at Cana, where she is the one who says to the uh, servants, do whatever he tells you. 
the mark of a disciple, the mark of a true disciple. And then at the end, she is standing around the cross and she's one of the ones who Jesus addresses in making clear what the new family structure is going to be for the followers of Jesus, which is it goes beyond kinship to looking after those in need. And so he gives her to John and John to her, or her to, you know, the favoured disciple, to care for each other. So she has a place that is small but key. And there is this picture of the one who listens and the one who reflects and who is strong enough, even in her, in her youth, to say, okay, if this is the way God wants to go, there's got to be something good that is going to come out of it. And off she goes. The next scene, um, and the next slide, I took this photo myself, and I think it's a really good one, in the Vatican Museums. Um, everyone who goes into the Vatican Museums makes for uh, the Sistine Chapel as fast as they can. It's the very end, so you've got about an hour of running through halls to get to the Sistine Chapel. I decided I wasn't going to do that. I was going to wander. And I found myself in the modern part of it. And I was the only person there. There weren't even guards saying, Madame, no flash! And so I managed to get a photo of this beautiful sculpture of Mary meeting Elizabeth. And the, the curve of these two women around their bellies as they lean forward, holding this wonderful secret of life that is growing within them and, and telling each other, and the sense of intimacy and excitement and joy and sharing in that story. And the story of Mary visiting Elizabeth it's such a women's story. You're astonished to find it there in the gospel. Except there it is. In those days, she set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Mary. And that lovely story of the child in, Mary, in Elizabeth's womb leaping for joy. Something about the meeting of these two women and the meeting of the unborn children that says, where, where does good news lie? It's certainly not lying in the political spheres, and Matthew's already made that pretty cl clear, but Luke comes in and says, in the tiny seeds, in, in the meeting between two cousins, two women, in a hill country, in somewhere far away from where, from where the power is, in the sharing of the beauty of growing new life, that's where good news is. Just in a few brief verses, we have this amazing picture of what is coming into the world and what it's going to do to the world. And so we follow, follow on from that with the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise, which has been um, called the Magnificat uh, from My Soul Magnifies the Lord. All those beautiful, beautiful verses of this hymn, which is 
a variation on a hymn sung by Hannah back in 1 Samuel 2 when she has the enunciation of a child to her. And it's, a, it's an expansion on an ancient hymn that is first sung by Miriam back in um, Exodus 15. And you get the expanded version first from Moses, but then we get the snippet that is sung by Miriam, which is probably the original because it's so short and so memorable. And it's all about, these songs sung by women are all about the upturning, the turning upside down, the complete unexpected, pulling the rug out from the status quo. So that those in power who have a vested interest in keeping, keeping the order the way it is because it suits them, the story comes in and says that is not the only way it is possible for life to be. And this is the story of the birth of Christ, is all the way through in both Gospels that breaking in, not just of a new vision, but of a new politics, uh, a new social order, a new everything we could possibly imagine. And the invitation to us to be brave like Mary and say, okay, if this is what you say is possible, God, angels, wherever this voice is coming from, if I take a deep breath and step into that... It's going to be dangerous, it's going to be hard, but oh my gosh, what might happen? It's an amazing story, this birth narrative. I might just grab the next, the next slide. I love this. There are so many images of, of the virgin and child, and they were probably taken over in, in early Christendom from um, images of... Um, the, the, it was one of the most widespread religious images throughout the ancient Near East in, in various different um, um, religions. In Egypt, it was... Um, what's her name? Isis, with the child Horus on her lap. Uh, in the Middle East, it was um, um, Ishtar, Astarte, many different names for the same goddess uh, with her child. And basically, the early church um, was very clever. They didn't try to undo everything. They just went round and drew halos around their heads and there we go, we got Mary and child, Mary and Christ. Um, but I love this picture, um, the, the deep maternal picture um, of, of the African woman holding her baby. And having been to Africa a number of times, um, the number of women who are walking around with babies slung behind their backs, uh, one of my, my friends over there said, it's our best crop over here is babies. We turn them out like nothing on earth. And she wasn't seeing that as a necessarily positive thing. But seeing the, the love with which she would run her hand over the heads of these little kids in the school, um, this picture just draws to my heart. This picture of the woman who is going to give birth, the woman whose life has been shaken to the core, who's been transformed and, and turned upside down, but is brave enough to do what needs to be done. 
is something that I don't think gets preached often enough from many churches. And I want to share with you um, a reading over the next next few slides that uh, came on my Facebook feed a couple of weeks ago and I instantly snaffled it because there is something about the reality of the giving birth that I think we also need to hear. And I talked a bit last week about the image of the vulnerability of God, but not just the vulnerability of God in, in being, you know, coming, coming as a baby, but that give, being given into the care of a young mother who is going through what young mothers go through. Sometimes I wonder if Mary breastfed Jesus, if she cried out when he bit her, or if she sobbed when he would not latch. And sometimes I wonder if this is all too vulgar to ask in a church full of men without milk stains on their shirts or coconut oil on their breasts, preaching from pulpits off-limits to the mother of God. But then I think of feeding Jesus, birthing Jesus, the expulsion of blood and smell of sweat, the salt of a mother's tears onto the soft head of the salt of the earth. Feeling lonely and tired, hungry, annoyed, overwhelmed, loving. And I think if the vulgarity of birth is not honestly preached by men who carry power but not burden, who carry privilege but not labour, who carry authority but not submission, then it should not be preached at all. Because the real scandal of the birth of God lies in the cracked nipples of a 14-year-old and not in the sermons of ministers who say women are too delicate to lead. Preaching to the converted here. Ouch and wow and various other things that you might um, think and feel and say. um, It's a really strong piece of writing. And that sense of what is Mary, there was a a rather wonderful piece of theology that came out um, maybe 10 years ago now, I can't quite remember, add add five years to the number I first thought of, it was probably 15 years ago, but it was a a joint statement between um, the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church worldwide called uh, Mary, Faith and Hope in Christ. And... uh, Theologians had got together over something like a 10-year period from from both of those uh, world communions to say, what can we say together? And they'd taken Mary to have a look at because she was such a contentious thing between um, the communions. There, There was this sense of, you know, do, do the Catholics actually worship a, um, a holy quartet rather than a holy trinity? Um, Mary, everyone got a little bit sick of, you know, the over, over-veneration of Mary, uh, within the Catholic Church as well, I should say, as outside it. So they decided, let's start with the biblical text, let's work our way through who is Mary. Well, the biblical text basically brought them to the decision that who Mary is is the first disciple. And having heard for many years from 
um, sort of the male hierarchy that she's the image of the perfect woman and this is what all women should be aspire to, like <laughs> virgin mothers, basically. You know. They said, no, she is there to be the example of the perfect disciple. Not just women, all disciples. She is set up there as the first one to say, "As let your will be done in, to God. And as John, John's gospel, the first one to say, do what he tells you. And so there is Mary in that. The one thing, it was a great, great document and I, I learned a lot from it. The one thing it didn't do was any sort of acknowledgement of the actual bodily functions of giving birth and the idea that God was part of that. And all of us women who were reading it when we were studying were going, still a men's document. It still says nothing about the reality that Jesus was born in a burst of blood-stained water. Uh, that there were the smells and the mess and the, all of that sort of thing, that it was blooming hard work and that it was wonderful that this child and mother survived because in those days, what would have been the survival rates, pretty low, uh, that, that God entrusted the seed of hope and salvation to the dangerous, the dangerous experience of being birthed. I was a midwife. And I, I saw people not survive birth, even in our top hospitals. You know, a da dangerous thing, birth. And here is God being so vulnerable that he entrusts that to this young female body. So the images of Mary that we've tended to um, have in our minds have come from particular uh, historical periods, and I won't say too much about them, but... Just the next slide, because this one, I think, is actually really interesting. Does this ring any bells for anybody? I don't know if anyone grew up Catholic and are being traumatised at the moment. But it's actually quite interesting, and, and it wasn't until I was... Um, I had explained to me the historical background. This is the, the fairly classic icon of the Queen of Heaven. So, Mary, you'll see it on the top of the, you know, cupolas in a lot of the, the great churches in, in um, Italy and all over the place. Mary with the crown on and in the white, glowing white. But if you look very closely, down round... Oh, you don't have to look that closely for this one. Round the bottom, see the little cherubs? This image of Mary grew up during the times of um, the plagues that were sweeping through, times of really high infant mortality. So this picture gave a huge amount of comfort to women who were losing their babies. They're the little cherubs. Oh, makes me come over all unnecessary just thinking about it. That sense that your baby is being looked after by the quintessential mother which all of a sudden changes that picture to something that I can cope with after all, after sort of looking at it and going... It, it really had a powerful thing to say to people who needed to know. And these were women who 
the only access to church was um, to, to crowd in a long way from the altar where the priest would have his back to them and would be doing the sort of rites up there that they couldn't understand because it was all in Latin anyway. The only way they'd know that actual communion was happening was when a bell rang to say, be quiet now. Um, and that was their entire connection with, with, um, with God was always through an intermediary who was miles away and had his back to them, always male. And so for them to imagine that there was a female who had been through what they'd been through, who had lost her child, lost her son, who had experienced the grief of a mother and who understood was actually incredibly powerful. Elizabeth uh, Cady Stanton, who... Um, wrote the first women's Bible commentary back in um, last century, uh, 18th, 19th century actually, quite late, said, well, at least the Catholics got one good, strong female leading figure because the Protestants had none. <laughs> and this was where Mary came into the hearts of, of uh, ordinary people. And it wasn't just as Queen of Heaven, it was because she had been this young, vulnerable girl, because she'd been the mother who, you know, washed nappies and scrubbed floors and worked hard to keep the family together, because she'd been the one who'd had to cradle the body of her son as he came down from the cross. And maybe the next couple of slides, just... The images of the Pieta, that's the famous Michelangelo one, of course, but so many images of the, the mother cradling her adult, adult son and um, taking him down from the cross on the next one. And this is Mary's place. She comes from a long line of, or a, a bit of a line anyway, of images of wisdom. Um, if you go back to Proverbs, Proverbs 8 in particular, this sense of woman wisdom, the woman who is there as a kind of intermediary between uh, the creator of all things and humans. A lovely line in there, uh, woman wisdom speaking and says, I was to them like a master carpenter, like a master builder, like a small child dancing. Uh, there's a really interesting word in the Hebrew in there that can be either translated as master uh, builder or child, depending on where you put one dot. And the Hebrews loved using words that you could play with like that because the dot isn't there unless you put it there yourself. Um, it's, it's not part of, you know, they were a consonantal script. And so there's strokes, but it wouldn't be until um, a scribe came along later and added the dot. And to leave the dot out means it can be read as both words at once, the small child and the master builder. And that sense of this child dancing in delight at creation. Uh, this, this woman of wisdom who stands and makes sure that the divine meets the human in a way that we can understand and connect with in whatever our particular um, feelings and experiences are. I think I should uh, stop. <laughs> I'm just going to stop. I'll just keep going. I do want to finish, though, with... Um, a blessing, and, and we'll be moving into uh, communion in a little while. 
So maybe before that, just one little story. Um, when I was teaching um, biblical theology, we read through the Annunciation um, one week and the students were just discussing it. And one of them said, I wonder how many other girls the angel went to before he found one who, who heard him. Doesn't that change the way you hear the whole story? I just think that was one of the most profound things I've ever heard. And, and we, we started thinking about annunciation, not so much as, you know, the appearance of an angel for someone special, as an invitation to live in a way that you can hear angels. <laughs> Whatever those angels are and however that voice that comes, that calls you into daring, daring, to, to hear the disruption that says life doesn't have to be like that. It can be different. And this is so much the invitation, I think, of, of Advent. It's the invitation of Mary. And I think as we move into our time of communion, which I will introduce with this um, blessing in a little while, we, we think about this time of waiting... And Advent is all about waiting in anticipation. And it's about waiting to see what might be born within each of us. What is the seed of hope and possibility that is just waiting to find a home in each of us so that it can grow and be expelled possibly with a lot of blood and tears and, and sweat out into the world to help change the world to become something more life-giving for everybody. This is, this is the invitation of Advent. And that is something that we bring into this time of communion because that blood and sweat and tears is all the way through the story then. It's where the story ends up as well. But it's still the invitation that through death, life can come. Through um, labour hope comes. So let me just pray this prayer and then we will um, invite a couple of people to come and take the plates of um, biscuits and to um, lead them around and we will join together in communion. If you want, the Virgin will come walking down the road, pregnant with the Holy and say, I need shelter for the night. Please take me inside your heart. My time is so close. Then under the roof of your soul, you will witness the sublime intimacy, the divine, the Christ, taking birth forever. As she grasps your hand for help, for each of us is the midwife of God, each of us. Yes, there, under the dome of your being, does creation come into existence eternally. Through your womb, dear pilgrim, the sacred womb in your soul, as God grasps our hands for help, for each of us is his beloved servant. Never far, if you want, the virgin will come walking down the street, pregnant, with light and sing.
And so as we take the emblem of the bread and we break it, again we remember that through brokenness comes possibility because breaking sometimes ourselves, sometimes our hearts, sometimes our understandings and our um, carefully held traditions is the only way that that new shaft of light can break through and grow. So we thank you, God. We thank your spirit for forever coming into us, for forever growing in the womb of our soul if we give it space for hope and life. Amen. Amen.